Whether you are bleeding to death from an injury, having a heart attack, or having a stroke, the common denominator is time. Can the closest emergency department give you what you need? Possibly not. You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Brendan Carr, who is an assistant professor of emergency medicine, surgery, and epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania. Remarkably, he's the only non-surgeon to complete a fellowship in trauma and critical care at Penn. Using trauma care as a model, he plans to explore how operations research and geographical information systems can be used to redesign the U.S. emergency care system. He's here today to tell us about a study that is probably one of the first steps of that work. Today we're discussing access to emergency care and how many of our patients are actually not being steered to the ED that can provide the care that they need. Welcome, Dr. Carr, to ReachMD. Thanks so much. So I have to ask you, how did you get into a trauma fellowship right out of an ED residency? The story's got to be good. You certainly beat out many aspiring young surgeons for the spot. I I wish it were more glamorous than it is. Uh, I suspect it had a lot to do with being at the right place at the right time. I trained at Penn in emergency medicine. I knew the trauma faculty well. I worked with them closely as part of the, uh, the injury center here, the fireman injury center. And when I wanted to sort of explore more about management of injured patients and study the design of the trauma system. These were sort of the natural folks to go to, and they were more than happy to to train me. Gave them an opportunity to operate while I ran the resuscitation bay. So was it your love of trauma that prompted you to analyze the EMS system? Well, it was my love of trauma that introduced me to the trauma care system, for sure. But then it's sort of my day-to-day life, practicing emergency medicine, that made me aware or increased my awareness about how differently the systems are organized. Those of us who work in the emergency department know, at least in most trauma systems, that it's a pretty well-oiled machine. And I think that anecdotally, many of us would say that it is sometimes less than that for other diseases that are time critical. So tell us about the model that you use to analyze the the EMS system. Now, we may not be familiar with all the concepts, but try try to make it so we can understand it. How was this study designed? Because it's really pretty amazing. The quick answer is, if you would imagine sort of taking every person in the U.S. and Google mapping them to their closest emergency department and then sort of summing up who can get to what type of emergency department within what time interval, that would be it. It's easier said than it is done. So there's some holes, there's some gaps in knowledge, which is part of the sort of fundamental problem about emergency care and and optimizing the emergency care delivery system. It turns out we don't actually really even know where all the emergency departments are. We don't know what sorts of resources they have once you get there. So that's sort of the one end of the equation. The other end of the equation is a little bit easier. The Census Bureau is pretty good to us and tells us within small units of analysis where people live. So what we actually did, since we couldn't Google map everybody, is we pick sort of small units of analysis, a couple hundred to a thousand folks. We measure their straight line distance to their closest emergency department. And then we make some assumptions about sort of bending distance and then assigning drive speeds based on ambulance drive speeds for rural, suburban, and urban areas. And then we sum them up. We sum up how many people can get to what type of facility within, uh, within 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes. So was all this done with programming and mathematically? Or? It is. It's all done, and, and they deserve a whole lot of credit. The Cartographic Modeling Lab at the University of Pennsylvania are a bunch of very savvy programmers with respect to geographic information systems. The arrival times that you looked at, they were just to get the patient to an emergency department, right? It didn't mean that that ED would ever be necessarily equipped to handle whatever that patient's specialized problem might be, right? 
Absolutely right. And this is the big gap in knowledge that I think sort of is the punchline of this paper, which is to say, you know, if you're having a stroke, we can get you to to an emergency department. We don't know that that emergency department has a CAT scanner or much less a CAT scanner that's available 24-7 or much less a, uh, a place that has a vascular neurologist. We don't know a lot about these emergency departments. What we do know is that there is an enormous crisis with respect to subspecialty surgical coverage, and we are delivering folks to places where they might not be able to get in an efficient manner what they might need done rapidly. So that's the bottom line, but what about the top-line results? What did you find even in terms of arrival to an emergency department? Well, with respect to arrival to an emergency department, I think we can be, we can be pretty happy. The bulk of the U.S. population, 70 or so percent, can get there in a half an hour, And almost all of us can get to an emergency department within an hour, 98% of the population. The rub on that, of course, is that our definition of an emergency department is any facility that is open 24 hours a day. It has nothing to do with who receives you when you get there or what resources are there. So knowing that would be an enormous, would would be a a huge step in the right direction. We, we We don't know that, so we've used a couple surrogates, and the surrogates that we used were those that we had, which is to say we stratified out by volume and we stratified out by who is or isn't a teaching hospital. And those numbers are a little bit a little bit more reassuring. If you start to look at teaching facilities, it's about 20% of the population that can get there in a half an hour and almost just under half they can get there within an hour. And then if you start to look at high volume emergency departments or, or emergency departments that you that see at least one patient every hour of the day, every day of the year, that ends up being for 30 minutes about 70% of the population and for 60 minutes about 95% of the population. These are really, really rough proxies for what we actually care about. We would like to be able to tell you how close you are to life-saving interventions, but we're not there yet. So what are just the, the beginning pragmatic steps, if you will, involved in such an enormous undertaking, what you're describing and trying to, to analyze and redesign an entire countrywide EMS system? How would you even propose to go about it? So first of all, I think that we're well-poised now. I mean, this is the time where everybody's interested in looking at health system reform, and if there's going to be some, uh, some energy behind this, I think this is, this is a reasonable time to think that there might be some, uh, some interest in, in sort of doing things right. When I think about this problem, I think about this problem in the context of where we came from. And where we came from is that there are a bunch of facilities, these elective care hospitals that existed, and then one day in 1966, Congress said, and now there are EMS systems. So National Highway Safety Act established emergency medical services, and all of a sudden there are emergency medical providers that are delivering patients to hospitals. Now, who's receiving them wasn't outlined in the EMS Act. So, you know, we create rooms, emergency rooms, where people are taken, and 30, 40 years later, we are still, I think, in a little bit as a specialty, in a little bit of a reactive stance. This happened to us. We didn't plan this. So there's still a mismatch. If you look at where hospitals are relative to where people are, there's a little bit of a mismatch. Certainly, if you look at the denominator of injury deaths or the denominator of stroke deaths relative to where large hospitals that can probably handle those diseases well are, there's a mismatch. So I think that the first steps, the first steps are in transparency. And then beyond transparency, the steps are in coordinating a system to get people where they need to go or conversely, which I hope we'll talk about a little bit, to get not just the the patient to the doctor, which is our traditional way of thinking about this, but thinking of fancy ways to deliver the doctor to the patient. For those of you who are just tuning in, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Brendan Carr. We're discussing access to emergency care in the United States today. How could you envision 
emergency department transport into the healthcare system in the future. I understand what you said. It started from the bottom up. People lived in areas. They built hospitals. There's a mismatch. But how can it be corrected? How could it be changed if you're in a small town that you're having a stroke and your hospital can't deal with it? And how could they plan in advance with EMS to get you where you need to be? Those words that you just said are extraordinarily important. Plan in advance would be a big piece of this. I guess I would say that you know if I were to, if I could have a Disneyland plan, I would instantly know what resources, what emergency care resources every hospital in the U.S. has. We could know where all the ambulances are all the time. We could probably get our heads around that, given the GPS technologies that we're all accustomed to using. And then you could have an online dashboard, right? And this online dashboard knows exactly what the bed capacity is, what the capabilities are, where the ambulances are. And then it's not that hard to input something into the system. Somebody calls and they have worrisome symptoms and your EMS crew gets dispatched. They take a look at them. And in some cases, diagnoses can be made ahead of time or pre-hospital. In a lot of cases, they can't. In a lot of cases, well, this is sort of the second piece that I was talking about. Coordination between facilities is a big deal. And thinking of um, novel ways using technology to, to deliver the doctor as a consultant to the patient, no matter where the patient is, is I think with, well within the realm of reason. So EMS evaluates the patient, picks up that it's a stroke, and then really by a computer system is, is told to go to the closest stroke facility. Well, maybe. You know, I mean, so that's the question. If the closest stroke facility is awfully far away and the closest facility has an emergency physician who is comfortable delivering stroke therapy, that's a reasonable solution. If the closest facility has a, an emergency physician who wants a consultation with a vascular neurologist and they have a webcam set up where the, where the vascular neurologist can take a look at the patient while the emergency physician is examining them, they can look at the uh, CAT scan together and they can have a conversation about whether or not to deliver clot-busting drugs. Well, you know, I mean, we just sort of advanced care without doing much more than turning on Skype. So that's it. They get the benefit of going to the closest, or maybe not the closest, but a reasonable facility that can stabilize them and handle their acuity. And if they can't handle all of the acuity, let's let's talk some more about the things you mentioned, using a webcam, telemedicine, consulting. How would these play in to your system? I think that there are going to be enormous pieces of it. You know, we, we know that as we have fewer and fewer subspecialists available to us, we're probably going to need to start to think about more and more clever ways of pooling them to cover. And I think the way to pool them is, like I said before, is to stop thinking about delivering the patient to the doc and start thinking about delivering the doc to the patient. So telemedicine is, is real. It exists. And there are trauma surgeons and emergency physicians who are helping resuscitations of injured patients in rural America where there is maybe someone who's not as comfortable in emergency medicine as a trauma surgeon, as an emergency physician. So they're resuscitating in real time, watching the resuscitation, offering advice, may helping to make decisions. It's real in stroke care. There are um, stroke facilities that spend a lot of time online watching um, neurologic exams and making decisions about whether or not to deliver thrombolytic drugs. It's real in the ICU here at Penn. Every patient in our ICUs is sort of wired, so to speak, so that there is an intensivist sitting in a large room full of monitors and cameras, and they can interact with the patient, interact with the nurse, interact with the resident, interact with whoever might be at the bedside and help them through decision-making. That's a real practical example. Can you tell us a little more? Explain this setup with your ICU. Tell us a little more about um, how you use your intensivists and your multiple um, ICU units for the best outcome. Sure. So uh, to be fair, n- not me. Uh, the guy's name is Bill Hansen. Right. You can't do everything, right? You're redesigning EMS in America. You got to have a little time for something else. Bill Hansen uh, runs one of the surgical critical care unit at Penn, and he wrote a book called The Future of Medicine, and he describes in it some of what he's done. And what he's done is, as I said, you know, so you're right that we live in, an, in a technology-rich place at the University of Pennsylvania, but at the same time, it's a training facility, which means that sometimes the person who is at the bedside is not a board-certified intensivist, is not a board-certified 
anything. <laughs> they are a resident. They are a training physician. And a little bit of guidance from the doc in the box or the guy that's on the TV camera who's been doing this for 20 years who says, look at that waveform again. I'm not sure that you're right. Let's talk about the next drug. It takes doc in the box to a whole new definition here, right? It's a compliment as opposed to being an insult. That's right. It's certainly, I meant it has no insult. It's a senior le- specialist in a box. It's a senior level person who can give you real time, pretty extraordinary feedback. How are you monitoring this? You've got one person covering several ICUs or? One person covering all of our hospitals, in fact. So you can imagine, you know, most of this, and there's obviously one, one intensivist and then, and then some nurses also at the command center. Then it's a two-way communication. There's the bedside nurse can always push the button and ring the intensivist in. It's kind of sort of paradoxical if you think about it. You can push the button and you know that the intensivist is immediately available. If they page the on-call doc, person might be on the other side of the hospital, might be responding to somebody in the emergency department, depending on what roles and responsibilities they have, might be in the operating room, might be in the trauma bay. So you're in a small town, your EMS system, somebody picks up on the fact you're having an acute stroke, they bring you to the closest or maybe the best place for stabilization, and then the, the physician who's working there may not be a neurologist or be certain about his diagnosis, but then he could use a webcam or teleconference in and get advice with pictures, getting advice from somebody more senior who has more experience in this area, provide for the best stabilization and outcome, and then if necessary, perhaps later on, transfer the patient. Is that about it? That's exactly it. And the back end of it is important. You know, rehabilitation services and all the sort of, they've, you know, the stroke folks have teased out little pieces of this puzzle that are important, making sure that person doesn't get a fever, making sure that that person is out of bed on day one, making sure that person gets the appropriate real rehabilitation consultation. They all are associated with important differences in outcomes. So sometimes, yeah, people do need to get transferred to referral centers, but it's probably not fair to think that the trauma solution, the solution that we all know best, which is bypass, is the only solution. I think there are lots of solutions, and this is an exciting time to be thinking about the challenges. I guess I would say sort of along those lines, organized emergency medicine is very interested in this right now. Both the American College of Emergency Physicians and the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine have task force that are looking at this, and they're working closely with this new lead agency that exists within the federal government. The Emergency Care Coordinating Center, the ECCC, within Health and Human Services, is a direct result of a report a couple years ago now out of the Institute of Medicine called the Future of Emergency Care, where they expressly say, explicitly said there needs to be a lead agency in the federal government that's going to help us to coordinate emergency care delivery. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks goes to Dr. Brendan Carr, who has been our guest. We've been discussing access to emergency health care in the United States. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMDXM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and listen to our entire library of podcasts. Thank you for listening.